John chapter 11, verse 54, through to John chapter 12, verse 8. I'll read that out now. This is God's word. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is God's word. I wonder what it is that you most value in your life. If I was to ask the question, what is it that you treasure? When we think of treasure, we probably have ideas of like Gollum from the Lord of the Rings or something like that. We don't really speak of things as our treasure. But in, in this uh, language, I'm asking, what is it that you value? What is it that you prize above all else in your life. So to treasure something is simply to give a high level of devotion to that thing. If we think of devotion, it's what we give our attention to. What consumes our thoughts, it is to prize whatever that thing is above most other things. And everyone will treasure something. Everyone will have something or someone, some idea that they treasure. Even the isolated, minimalist introvert, a pure hermit, treasures his seclusion and simplicity. The stereotypical Canberran public servant may treasure their affluent and easy lifestyle. Everyone treasures something. They all have some idea, whether subconsciously or consciously, that they are navigating their life around. And this passage today will show us something beautiful about treasuring Christ above everything that seems valuable in this world. So the context of our passage, we pick up where we left off last week in verse 54, where we read that Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews. We saw last week that he performed this great sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. In verse 53, we read that because he did this, the council are now definitely planning to kill him. They have clear plans to put him to death. So verse 54, he no longer walks openly, but privately, now, from here to the beginning of John chapter 12, there's a few months that have gone by 
Only a few months, Jesus went to an area called Ephraim. And now we read that Passover is at hand. This is Jesus' third Passover of his earthly ministry. He is now into the last week of his life on earth, right before his death and resurrection. Now, up to this point in John's gospel, through the first 11 chapters, we've seen many signs. Seven particular signs, the raising of Lazarus being the last one. And these signs, as we've discussed, are things that symbolize a greater reality. So when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, not only is it a great sign, but it's also symbolizing this reality of our own spiritual and physical resurrection. It's pointing to something symbolizing a greater reality. Now, the main event of our passage today, which is in chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, this beautiful act of Mary anointing Jesus. This is not necessarily a sign per se, but there is something very symbolic about this. There is something incredibly symbolic about the actions that Mary does. Mary's actions here demonstrate the immeasurable value of Christ in contrast to what seems valuable by worldly standards. She takes something of extreme value and it is extremely valuable, this ointment, and she uses it to show what is truly of immeasurable value or who is truly of immeasurable value. Now, if we look at our passage, mainly from chapter 12, verse one, this all happens in the middle of this dinner. So Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. The people of Bethany, a few months later, want to throw him effectively a party. They want to honor him and invite him in to dinner. So we know that Martha, Mary, Lazarus, and presumably many others are there. Many other people in Bethany, and even possibly from Jerusalem, saw what Jesus did. They've come, and there's many more people who want to host Jesus. And during this dinner... Mary takes a pound of incredibly expensive ointment. And for context, I had to look this up because I don't use perfume, but a perfume bottle is about 100 mil. Now, this ointment that uh, Mary has is almost the equivalent of 400 mil. So it's about four times the size of your average perfume bottle. It's a lot. It's a lot of ointment. We know from the other accounts that she exhausts all of this upon Jesus. This is an extravagant act that she does. She pours it upon him. She wipes it into his feet with her hair. And Judas, who sees this, is outraged at this act. He can't believe it. He says, why was this not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And Jesus defends Mary and he says, leave her alone because she has kept this for the day Of my burial. Now, for our own background, some of you may be aware, some not. This story is repeated in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. I had a whole section here explaining reasons why this is the same story and reasons why it's different to Luke 7. It blew out of proportion, so I'm just going to make the assertion that it is the same story in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. The majority of the details are the same, and even the minor differences are very easily reconcilable. So, this is the same event that we have in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John records it here in John 12. And what is abundantly clear in all of the accounts is that Mary takes something of extreme value by worldly standards and pours it out all over Jesus to show what is truly valuable. And make no mistake, this is 
a very expensive ointment. 300 denarii is basically an annual salary. So by Canberra standards, this is $100,000 worth of ointment. Just in case you didn't realize, that's the median salary in Canberra. Not sure how that makes you feel, but that could be uh, good or bad. That's the average salary in Canberra. So if we contextualize this here, this is like someone pouring out $100,000 worth of perfume just like that, all upon someone. So naturally, people are astounded at this extravagant action. Why was this amount used in a single moment. In Matthew and Mark's account, they um, say that it's not simply Judas, but it's all the disciples actually that are saying, well, why, why did you do this, Jesus? This is so much. This could have been used for the poor. But Jesus recognizes the beauty in what Mary has done. Jesus comes to her defense. And in Mark's account, Jesus actually says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. Literally a good work, but the good there is this attractive good. It's, it's a good that conveys beauty. So Jesus says, you want to see what a good work is? Mary has done it. She has done a beautiful thing, a beautiful work. It is beautiful because it shows the supreme worth of Jesus Christ as the one we are to treasure above everything else. It is beautiful because she is anointing him right before his sacrificial death as he becomes the lamb led to the slaughter. So Mary takes what is extremely valuable by worldly standards and she pours it all out on the one who has immeasurable value. And in doing this, she shows where her value truly lies. So here is the point that we will look at today and we will develop. Christ is to be treasured above everything else in this world. Christ is to be treasured above everything else in this world. We're going to firstly look at how we discern whether we are treasuring Christ, and then we're going to make some observations from Mary's extravagant act of devotion to see how this shapes our own devotion. So it's easy for us to say that we treasure Christ. It's easy for us uh, to perhaps say, of course, Christ has my devotion. But treasuring Christ will not simply be a matter of words. Just like for Mary, it was not simply a matter of words. As she displays here, treasuring Christ will be seen in our actions. Treasuring Christ will be seen in our way of life. It will be seen in what we think about, how we talk, what we do. So what is it? If I come back to my introduction, what is it that you think most about? What is it that occupies your thoughts? Does your mind constantly gravitate toward a particular hobby or interest? Is that where your mind constantly goes? And what is that? Is it something that glorifies God? Maybe a better way of putting this is looking at the schedule of your week. What are the non-negotiables of your week? What are those things when you're thinking about how you schedule your week, or perhaps you don't even think about scheduling this, it's just such a non-negotiable that it's in your week already. What are those things that take first priority in your week? When football season is on, is it the football games? And then reading through the week about who's selected in the teams. The non-negotiables of your weeks are formed around your desire for football or sport? Is it social activities? Catching up with particular people. These are the non-negotiables of your week. If we think about perhaps some examples of what might be 
treasuring Christ in non-negotiables, I wonder, where does pure, uninterrupted devotion to Christ sit in the scheduling of your week? Where does that fit in the non-negotiable of your week? So where are those moments where you intentionally set aside time to meditate upon the Word of God? Not simply fitting it in on a transit, nothing against that, but I believe there are times where we ought to be setting aside time where we are intentionally meditating upon the Word of God with no distractions. Where are those moments where you are intentionally meeting with another brother or sister to stir them on to love and good works? Where do they fit within your scheduling of your week? Someone once said, show me your uh, bank statement and I'll show you what you value. I think that's true. Another way of saying that is show me your calendar, show me what your non-negotiables are and I'll show you what you treasure. That's what your life revolves around. Now, Mary shows us what she treasures. Her act is symbolic of the value she places upon Christ. And it is a value that is incomparable to even the most expensive of worldly resources. And $100,000 of perfume is a very expensive resource. And this seems outrageous to those looking on. I mean, even to the disciples. And I'm sure there will be many people there who looked at that and thought, why did she just do this? This is such a waste of resources. And here is part of how we can discern whether we are rightly treasuring Christ. See, part of the way that we can discern whether we are rightly treasuring Christ is that what we offer toward him, whether it is our time or our resources, our attention, what we offer toward him would otherwise seem outrageous if it were directed toward anyone else. What we offer toward Christ should otherwise seem outrageous if we directed that level of devotion to anyone else. For example, if I said to you, I intend or I live my life by devoting an hour of every morning to just meditating and reading and thinking about Donald Trump or Jimi Hendrix or someone like that, and I take an hour out of my morning every day and I just want to meditate upon this man and think about him and read stories to him. That seems absurd. It's outrageous. No mere man is worthy of such devotion. No one is worthy of such devotion. That should seem outrageous. Now, I carefully use the word should. It should seem outrageous. Because we are in a time where it is not unusual for people to devote their lives to something other than Christ. People will literally spend their annual salary following a sports team. There was a story I read last year where a couple from North Queensland spent their annual salary and a bit of their children's inheritance following the North Queensland Cowboys around the country watching their game. And it was a comical thing in the story of them saying, oh, it's just the children's inheritance. Ha, 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 ha. What a waste of resources. And yet that's quite normal. Spending literally $50,000 a year following a sports team around. Or people will intentionally set aside hours of their day to listen to their favorite musician and then they will spend extra spontaneous time thinking about that person through the day. This is a normal thing. See, this is an idolatrous world. It should seem utterly absurd to be living that way. It should seem utterly outrageous to be giving that person that level of attention. 
So what makes it very difficult for us is we are discerning how we, whether we are treasuring Christ as we work out what it means to treasure Christ. The difficult thing is that our culture, our world has everything reversed. So most people would not even think twice about Taylor Swift fans following her around the world, around Europe, watching her concerts. That seems quite normal. But the moment someone pledges their allegiance to Jesus Christ and begins to arrange their life around what honors him, they begin to arrange the schedule of their week around gathering with God's people. All of a sudden, that's a religious fanatic. That's someone we should be worried about. See, everything's reversed. But in Mary's act here, this is the beautiful thing. In Mary's act here, we see the correction of everything that is wrong in our society. Mary shows us where our devotion must be directed as she takes something incredibly valuable by worldly standards and she pours it out on the only one who is worthy of such value. What we see in Mary's act of extravagant devotion is that we must treasure Christ above all else. Now, I want to make some observations and then applications from Mary's act here. How does Mary demonstrate a pattern of extravagant devotion that we ought to follow? So I want to make three main observations here. Firstly, Mary's devotion to Christ trumps any fear of man. Mary's devotion to Christ trumps any fear of man. Remember in the context, immediately before this event, we we read in verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, then that person had to let them know so that they could arrest Jesus. Now remember Bethany, the town where Mary and Martha are, is only, it's less than two miles from Jerusalem. So they are very aware that there is an order out that anyone who knows where Jesus is must tell the authority so that they can arrest him. And what do they do? They throw a party for him. Mary's devotion trumps her fear of man. Mary likely knows that her hosting of Jesus puts her life in danger. We're going to see this in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 12. We read that after this, poor Lazarus, he's only just been raised from the dead, the authorities actually make plans for him to be put to death after this event. So Mary and her family put themselves at great risk in order to honor Jesus, but Mary simply does not care. We have already seen that her devotion toward Christ leaves her with no concern for her own image. She doesn't seem to have any self-preservation, even the very fact that she lets her hair down, which for a woman in that context to have unbound hair was quite often a promiscuous thing. It was often a socially unacceptable thing, and yet she unbinds her hair solely to wash the feet. Now, the feet were the most putrid part of the body, and she washes the feet of Jesus. She abandons all social customs because she is so full of adoration to her Savior. She displays a complete lack of concern for protecting her own life because she and her family simply must treasure Christ. It's like she is compelled. She is compelled from within herself to make Christ look glorious and treasured. And notice the stark contrast between what we've just seen in the religious leaders who fear man. Remember in our passage last week, in verses 45 to 53. The religious leaders have this council and they say, basically, 
this is getting out of control. If Jesus keeps doing these things, Rome is going to take away our place. So let's make sure this doesn't happen. And the result is that they want to kill Jesus because they fear man. They fear what Rome will do. And so they send an innocent man off to be crucified. In contrast to this, Mary, who is fully aware that anyone associating with Jesus must refer him to the authorities, she throws a party, she publicly anoints Jesus in the most extravagant way, drawing a lot of attention to what she was doing because her devotion to Christ trumps any fear of man. That's the reality. And so must it be with us. So must it be with our devotion to Christ, our desire to honor, praise and treasure Christ should lead us to places that risk our employment. It must lead us to places that may risk our relationships, even our lives. This is the level of devotion that Christ asks for. And only when, and here is the thing, only when we see his immeasurable worth, Only when we see Christ's immeasurable worth will we willingly put ourselves in places of vulnerability because that desire to treasure Christ far outweighs any fear of man that may come. Now, this flows well into the next observation we see in Mary's act of devotion. Secondly, a costly offering becomes far less sacrificial when it is directed toward Christ. A costly offering, and this is a costly offering that she gives, becomes far less sacrificial when directed toward Christ. See, what Mary offers here in this expensive amount of perfume, that could be seen as a great sacrifice. Giving up an annual salary's worth of perfume in one moment could seem like a great sacrifice. Many people... Uh, speculate that perhaps Mary, Martha and Lazarus were from a wealthy family. We don't particularly know that they were from a wealthy family. This could have just been a family heirloom. We're not quite sure. But either way, the value of this ointment was immense. But there doesn't seem to be any sacrifice within Mary. There doesn't seem to be a, a, a sort of sacrificial disposition within her. She joyfully and willingly does this. Now, in some circumstances, it is, of course, right that our offerings toward God uh, are sacrificial. We are told to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. There will be sacrifice in the Christian life. But in our passage today, Mary shows us how our level of devotion to Christ makes certain things far less sacrificial than they would be in other contexts. For example, let's say... You were asked to get up at one o'clock in the morning to drive three hours to the airport to pick someone up and then bring them back. Now, that would be likely a great sacrifice. It certainly would for me. Getting up at 1 a.m., losing hours of sleep, driving a six hour round trip to pick someone up. That is a sacrifice. But let's say the context is different. Let's say your child or your spouse or a loved one had been missing. They'd gone missing, months had gone by, you haven't heard from them at all. And finally, at about midnight, you get a call from the authorities saying, we've found them. We've found them, we're flying them into Sydney. You can pick them up at 4 a.m. and take them home. 
Do you think it would feel like a sacrifice to get up and drive to see your child or your spouse or your loved one that you hadn't seen for months, you thought they were dead? There would be no sense of sacrifice. There would be a joyful, unreserved, willing push, a thrust, a compulsion to go and pick them up. Because the level of devotion that Mary has, see this level of devotion that she has, her act is not so much characterized by sacrifice, rather her act seems like unstoppable, unreserved, joyful willingness. She delights in doing this. See, when the offering is directed toward Christ, the context is different. When our offerings are directed toward Christ, suddenly the sacrifice becomes a joyful, willing offering poured out upon him. In fact, it actually seems insignificant to exhaust $100,000 worth on the Son of God who is infinitely valuable. See, where Christ is our treasure, giving becomes a pleasure. I'm borrowing that and changing it from Piper. When Christ is our treasure, giving becomes a pleasure. See, the reality is for many people, it would seem like a sacrifice to take an hour out of your morning every day to devote a time to reading and prayer. It does seem like a sacrifice to get up an hour earlier until Christ becomes so treasured. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be an hour in the morning, but a certain portion of your life once seems sacrificial until Christ becomes so treasured above everything else that it then becomes a sacrifice to miss those times. Or for many people, it would seem like a sacrifice to gather three times a week as a body of believers. It seems like a cost. Now, admittedly, we should say it's a small cost out of the 144 hours of our week. Giving up about 10 of them is not all that much, but it does seem like a cost. We have other things that fill our weeks until Christ becomes treasured above everything else. And where Christ is treasured, the gathering of Christ's church becomes treasured. So this is the point here, the pathway to this place of joyful willingness in what we give, the pathway to coming to this place where what once seems sacrificial is a joyful, willing offering isn't primarily to focus upon offering more things. That's not the focus. The focus is on treasuring Christ. The focus should be on slowly but surely growing day by day in our understanding of who Christ is of swimming deeper into this ocean of knowing Christ. And as we grow in our understanding of who Christ is, He is inevitably seen to be glorious. He is inevitably seen to be glorious as He grips our hearts and we grow in our joyful giving. Things that once seemed sacrificial are done as joyful, willing offerings toward Him. So where Christ is treasured in this way, Things that once seemed sacrificial are given joyfully and willingly. Where Christ is our treasure, giving is a pleasure. And thirdly and finally, our last observation. True devotion is marked by pure adoration rather than pragmatism. Pragmatism is where we simply do what is most useful, what works best, what's pragmatic, and on surface level, there is an element in which Judas's response in verse 5 is a pragmatic response. He says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? There was a much better use for this, Jesus. This could have been used to serve many, many people. 
Now, John records that Judas didn't really care for the poor. He just wanted the money. But nevertheless, on surface level, this is a valid question. Why spend a whole year's worth of money in one moment for someone to smell good? Why exhaust this expensive resource in a single moment? It seems more pragmatic to take something that is the equivalent of $100,000 by Canberra standards to use it and serve many people rather than simply serving one person. That's the reality. It seems far more pragmatic to do that. And this is what I mean by pragmatism in contrast to pure adoration. I'm not against being practical. I'm not against doing things that are sensible. I'm talking about a pragmatism that simply does whatever is best, whatever seems most useful, often for the greater good. See, God is not a God of pragmatism because pragmatism inevitably compromises on beauty, integrity, and true devotion. Pragmatism will inevitably compromise if pragmatism is the goal. God does not desire that we do what is pragmatic, but rather that we do what is most faithful and most glorifies Him. So for example, it certainly was pragmatic for the Israelites who when they were recovering the Ark of the Covenant, carried it on a cart that long distance back to Jerusalem. It was pragmatic for them to put it on a cart rather than having Levites carry it that, all that way. But that was not what God desired. That was not what God prescribed in his word. And someone died because of it. It would have been more pragmatic if we think about the building of the first temple, not to spend what is the equivalent of about five to ten billion dollars by today's standards on a temple. Why not spend maybe even half of that and then use half of it to create some sustainable living program for Israel at the time? It didn't seem pragmatic to use all of those resources, but God desired that he looked glorious through this temple. He wanted people to come from as far as Ethiopia to come and glory in his temple. It was not pragmatic for God to reduce Gideon's army down from 30,000 men all the way down to 300. That's not a pragmatic move, God. There's this huge army coming against us. You want us to cut it down from 30,000 to 300. But that was not going to make God look glorious in victory. When he cut it down that much, it made him look utterly glorious. So there will be times where we do things that are practical and that do glorify God. But here's the thing, in our lives of devotion to God, he primarily desires that we do what is faithful and what most glorifies him rather than simply what works and how many applications we could think of for the modern church with which we are a part of where people simply do what works best for consumers, what works best for the masses. God does not desire that. And so we see here that Mary does not do what is pragmatic. Mary takes what could have been used and sold to make another miraculous feeding, so to speak, another feeding of 20,000 people from this amount of resources. She takes that expensive, extravagant amount and she pours it all out at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, this is a beautiful work. This is a marvelous work. Now, let me be clear. I am again, not in any way 
suggesting that we forget about practical needs and tasks, nor is Jesus here advocating that we simply forget about the poor. That's not what he's saying. Jesus' point is to say there is a priority toward him at the exclusion of everything else. There is a priority toward him at the exclusion of everything else. So there will be opportunities to serve the poor in the future, just as there will be times where we tend to practical needs. But these can never, ever be done apart from an uncompromising devotion to Christ. In fact, that's where they flow from, an uncompromising devotion to Christ. And what Mary is doing here is modeling this uncompromising devotion. See, Mary would have certainly done other things in her life. It's not like her whole life is characterized by sitting at the feet of Jesus. She had a life. She did other things. She probably tended to practical needs, needs around the house. And yet the only times in the Gospels or the prominent times, the two prominent times that we read of Mary, she is sitting at the feet of Jesus. In fact, the other time, it's something to do with Jesus' feet as well. There's something about Mary where she has this default desire within her that is willing to forego any worldly treasure, willing to forego any social reputation so that she may treasure Christ. If we think about the other prominent story of Mary in Luke 10, many of you would be familiar with this story where Martha and Mary are serving and it's always this contrast where Martha is busy serving and she's distracted by many things and she's frustrated because Mary is simply sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so Martha in her frustration says to Jesus, don't you care? She's just sitting there at your feet doing nothing and I'm doing all of these things. And Jesus says to Martha, Martha, you're distracted by many things, but there is one thing that is important. Literally the language Jesus uses is there is one thing that is important and Mary has chosen it. Mary has chosen the best portion which will never be taken from her. There are so many things to be distracted by in this world. There is one priority at the exclusion of everything else that is to treasure Christ, to sit at his feet. Mary models this. Now we miss the point if we simply see Martha's actions of service in contrast to Mary. It's not like we say, not doing the dishes, I've got to read my Bible. Of course, there's service that we do. Jesus clearly wants us to serve. We'll see that in John 13. But our service must be done with this default desire within us that treasures Christ. And I would say that what Mary shows us here is actually the greatest safeguard against Christians reducing their lives and against churches reducing their lives down to a pragmatism that inevitably compromises on the beauty and integrity of God. There are moments where Mary simply had to savor and relish in the glory of Christ. It's like she's not concerned about anything else at this moment. At this time, she must savor and relish in the glory of Christ. And I believe these moments, these moments in our lives, these moments as we gather together as a church, they are what are essential for the follower of Jesus to prevent their life from reverting to some cold-hearted pragmatism that simply does what is most useful. If I can finish with an example. If you think about our lives as, as a compass... I shared this a while ago. If you think about our lives 
as a compass, an old school compass where you need to work out where north is. And compasses need to be recalibrated. And in particular environments, compasses need to regularly be recalibrated. So we need to know the right direction we're going in. We need to know what glorifies God. Intentional moments of devotion. Intentional moments of devotion where we are treasuring Christ are what recalibrate our compass. They are what recalibrate the compass of our lives so that we know what is the direction that we ought to be walking that most glorifies God. These moments of setting aside time, these moments of gathering with God's people, these moments of intentionally treasuring Christ where you have no distractions, they are what recalibrate your compass so that your life is full of devotion so that you go about the rest of your lives with this direction toward the glory of God. This is what must be fundamental to our lives. These intentional moments of devotion, the ordinary means of grace, reading the word, meditating upon it, seeking the Lord in prayer, gathering with God's people. If these are not there, your compass will be all out of whack. It will not be calibrated. You'll be moving. You'll be going in a direction, but you won't know what most glorifies God. You'll be out of sync. Now, I'm not talking about a monastic life that simply huddles away again that you spend all your time reading the word and praying there are many other things that we must attend to rather this is a posture that treasures christ even as you are attending to practical needs it is a life of active devotion that works diligently in the workplace and you're in the workplace doing things to the glory of god because your heart has been calibrated correctly to what most glorifies God. It is the mum raising her children at home, tending to the needs of her children, cleaning bottoms and throwing nappies in the bin and doing them all to the glory of God with a heart that is just a joyful offering to the Lord because these moments, your life has been calibrated correctly. These activities are done to the glory of God where our lives are daily recalibrated by treasuring Christ. See, it's so easy to get caught up in pragmatic affairs of this life. It's so easy to get caught up in monotony. These simple means of grace are what recalibrate our lives so that we understand what most honors God. So the things we do are done as joyful offerings to the Lord. What we see in Mary is a shake-up to cold-hearted pragmatism where she displays a pure adoration which abandons everything that she considers valuable, everything that the world considers valuable. She abandons it for the sake of treasuring Christ. Now, before we come around a time of the Lord's table, I want us to just take a moment where we as a congregation can treasure Christ I think of two passages in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the writer says, after displaying all of these beautiful, uh, this beautiful picture of Christ being supreme over everything else, 
And he says in chapter two, verse one, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What have they heard? They've heard about how superior Christ is than everything else. And he says, we must pay much closer attention to this, lest we drift away. We will drift away. We will not have our compasses. We will not have our hearts calibrated correctly if we do not pay much closer attention to the things of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. That's what he's saying. Consider Jesus. Contemplate Jesus. Think about Jesus. Meditate upon Jesus. These are the things that calibrate our hearts. These are the things that protect us from drifting away, drifting down a life full of pragmatism, which is very easy to do in the church environments. We facilitate so that people who have hearts that are far from the Lord can seem like they're doing the right thing because their lives are full of cold-hearted pragmatism as opposed to this warm, extravagant devotion. So let us finish by just considering a few things about Christ that the author of Hebrews puts out for us. Consider, consider how Jesus is God's final word and revelation. Chapter one, verses one and two. Consider how he is the last and final statement to the world. Jesus is God screaming to the world saying, here I am, trust in me. Jesus is God's final word and revelation. Consider how Jesus radiates the glory of God. Consider how he just glows of the glory of God, how in the face of Jesus Christ, we see the glory of God. Consider how Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Consider the very fact that the reason why we have not imploded, the reason why this universe is still functioning is because Jesus is upholding it right now by the word of his power. The same word which spoke things into existence continues to uphold the very universe that we have not even comprehended yet. Consider how though Jesus is superior than everyone and everything, he becomes lower than the angels. Consider how he lowered himself and humbled himself to the point of a servant becoming obedient to the death of the cross. Consider how he became perfect through suffering so that he would not be ashamed to call us brothers. We've just seen this in John 11. Consider how Jesus wept. Consider how Jesus entered fully into the suffering of this world so that he would understand and be a faithful high priest. Consider how Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to become the source of eternal salvation. Consider how he offered himself in our place. Consider how he hung upon the cross as the lamb who was slain. Consider how his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Consider how he always lives to make intercession for us even now. These are the things we must be very careful to pay much closer attention to, lest we drift away.